Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. I'm Stephanie Carvin, and I'm joined here by Tomaz Junot, a frequent contributor to the podcast, as well as two very special guests, Major General Michael Wright, the commander of the Canadian Forces Intelligence Command, or CFNCOM, and the Chief of Defense Intelligence, as well as Ms. Christine Kennedy, the Assistant Chief of Defense Intelligence. Thank you both for joining us today. Well, thanks, Stephanie and Toma, for inviting us. I'm a longtime listener of the podcast, so it's actually pretty exciting to have this opportunity to uh, participate. I, we're always happy to have fans on, so thanks, thanks for being <laughs> here. But I think we should actually start off by just saying, what is it that you guys do and what is CFNCOM? Right. I think maybe I'll start off with talking about the Defense Intelligence Enterprise, just to define what we mean when we say that. So. There are about 4,000 people across the Department of National Defense and Canadian Armed Forces who are involved in intelligence. That involves people who are serving in the Canadian Army, the Royal Canadian Navy, the Royal Canadian Air Force, in our designated supported commanders, so the Canadian Joint Operations Command, the Canadian Special Operations Forces Command, and NORAD, our binational command uh, down in Colorado as well as with the Assistant Deputy Minister of Information Management, because that's where our SIGINT unit, the Canadian Forces Intelligence Operation Group, falls under, although obviously they work very closely with us. So the, all of those organizations have people who are working in Defence Intelligence, and then within Canadian Forces Intelligence Command, we have about 1,000 people. So 4,000 people across Canadian Armed Forces Department of National Defence that really comprises the Defense Intelligence Enterprise. So if you look at, there's a Defense Intelligence Enterprise, and we really represent Canadian Air Forces Department of National Defense across the Canadian national security and intelligence community. Obviously, we work most closely with organizations such as CSIS, and I'm comfortable using acronyms there because I know that the listeners of this podcast are very uh, familiar with them. Also, the Intelligence Assessment Secretariat, the Integrated Terrorism Assessment Center, organizations, Global Affairs Canada, and really a whole lot more. And frankly, that, that community is expanding. Maybe then I can talk about what is CFINCOM itself. So. We talked about how there are other organizations within D&D CAF which have intelligence. We talked about our partners within the Government of Canada. We in CFINCARM are the only all-source intelligence capability across the Government of Canada. And and sorry, and not to interrupt, um, but I'm interrupting. What do you mean by all-source? Because I think sometimes that confuses people. Yeah, absolutely. So I think a great way to explain all-source is to explain the units that fall under Canadian Forces Intelligence, specifically under our Canadian Forces Intelligence Group, because that illustrates most of the the sources. So we have two geo in, geospatial intelligence units, the Canadian Forces Joint Imagery Centre, and the mapping and charting establishment. Both of those units are located here in Ottawa. The amount of work that they're doing together is increasing and will only continue to increase in the future because I really think that the future is an integrated geospatial intelligence unit. We have a human intelligence or human unit located down in Kingston, Joint Task Force X. We have a meteorology and oceanography unit, so the Joint Meteorology Centre located in beautiful Gagetown, New Brunswick. We have our Canadian Forces National Counterintelligence Unit, which is has its headquarters based here in Ottawa, but has detachments throughout the country. And then we have two training institutions. We have the Canadian Forces School of Military Intelligence in Kingston, 
and we have the Canadian Forces School of Meteorology in Winnipeg. So that covers off most of the various sources that we talk about, but maybe this might be a good opportunity to pass to Christine because a number of them are actually also found within Christine's directorate within our headquarters. As you indicated, I'm the Assistant uh, Chief of Defence Intelligence, so essentially I'm the deputy to um, the commander. So I'm dual-hatted, aside from my other jobs, but I'm dual-hatted in this current position where I support the CDI in fulfilling his responsibilities. Um, but I'm also, I also oversee my own branch, and so that's what the commander wanted me to uh, speak to quickly. So I oversee two principal intelligence assessments groups, which is DTRI, that's the Directorate of T Transnational and regional intelligence. This is our directorate that's really at the core of our efforts in Ukraine. There's a lot of geographical focus on the assessments in that shop, but we are expanding where we have a little cell on uh, climate change, but also economic security. We're building that out and also a little group on cyber that we're developing as well. I also oversee the directorate of intelligence production management, and they essentially manage the in entire intelligence cycle from collection to dissemination. There are people that are very critical in how we're wrapping up our intelligence and selling it and distributing it across government, but also with our five eyes. So making it making our intelligence make sense and getting it to where it needs in a very timely manner. I also oversee DIRC, so the Directorate of Intelligence Review and Compliance. They are essentially responsible for compliance reviews and assessments internally and across the Defense Intelligence Enterprise. And they're also responsible for collating and responding to NCIRA and NSI COP reviews. So very critical to our operations. I also oversee the work of the Director General of Intelligence for Partnerships and Policies. So that's our defense policy shop that I work closely with. And we have an exec executive in that role that I work closely with. Um, just a word on our headquarters is that it's very much an integrated headquarters with military civilian working side by side. We very very much epitomize the defense team concept, which you see right here in our leadership team. So we're really proud of that. I would just note as well for what we do, we work very closely with the intelligence community with all the different departments and agencies working. So I just wanted to highlight that because we couldn't really do the work we do without working in partnership with everybody across town. So I just have a quick follow-up to that because one time I, I put out in social media that D&D had the largest intelligence apparatus and I got in trouble for this. But it's clear that you have the largest sources of intelligence and, and also one of the largest mandates. And do you want to, can you speak to that, to, to, the, to that mandate just before we move on? Yeah, so absolutely. Our mandate is to provide credible, timely, uh, and relevant information. Intelligence that becomes information and provides information and decision advantage to decision makers, whether those decision makers are within the Department of National Defense, Canadian Armed Forces, or across the government of Canada. So specifically, you know, being at the strategic level, the clients that we are the most concerned about are the Minister of National Defense, the Chief of the Defence Staff and the Deputy Minister, but we are equally providing support to the various Level 1 organizations, so the Army-Navy Air Force, Joint Operations Command, Canadian Special Forces Command that I was mentioning before, but also working with the operational level and then ensuring that when the Minister, the Chief of the Defence Staff, the Deputy Minister are going around the town, that we're providing them with the background that they need to be involved in the discussions that they're going to be having about matters uh, regarding intelligence. 
And you are the member of the, the intelligence community that has that collects the broadest uh, range of types of intelligence, right? You do human, the, SIGINT, GEOINT, and all that, uh, the, which nobody else does. Uh, yeah, that's right. So, And that's actually a great point, Thomas, because it's one thing to have all those different sources, but the important thing is to actually integrate those sources. So what CF Incom started in 2018 is forming integrated mission teams. And integrated mission teams were basically built upon lessons learned from the Canadian Armed Forces time in Afghanistan, where we had all source intelligence centers. So as opposed to all those different sources of intelligence working in silos, we have an integrated team in those integrated mission teams, as the name would suggest. We have teams of all those disciplines. So we have analysts, we have geospatial uh, intelligence experts, We have SIGINTers, we have OSINT experts. OSINT, I know, is something we didn't uh, mention before, but open source intelligence is important now and will only get more, become more important in the future. So it's really our opportunity to make sure that as we are looking at problems, we're looking at them holistically and we're able to put the full weight of all those sources uh, towards examining a problem, which could be a geographical area or it could be a topic such as climate change. On that point, there's something I'd like to follow up on what Christine just said on climate change. It's interesting you say that because uh, in the fall of last year at the CASIS conference, the Canadian Association of Security Intelligence Studies, Trisha Geddes, who is the Deputy Director for Policy mm-hmm. at CSIS, mentioned that the service is interested in the security implications of climate change, which in many ways is stating the obvious, but it was interesting that was one of the first times that somebody from the government would say that publicly. What does that mean for you? What are you looking at? How does it impact your work? In my mind, we do have a mandate to be playing in this space. I mean, it's a government priority about our environment and climate change. So for us, we developed the capability. It was actually before my time when I started in September. So that was built and in place. We do have one analyst devoted to this effort and we are proactively growing it. But again, for me, it's a no-brainer. It's a space we need to get in. As the commander says, you know, the thing that's going to keep him awake for the rest of his life will be issues as it relates to climate change in our environment. I mean, I think about the storm that just hit Ottawa and then hearing that we're just going to be experiencing more of that. For defense specifically, building up that capability is significant because it's giving us the assessments required from a CAF perspective. So what are our operations that are across the globe? Where are different countries experiencing the hotspots related to environmental changes? And where is our CAF going to be implicated in those? Whether they're based there now, but where are the increased demands going to be on CAF operations for deploying internationally or even domestically. I was going to say aid to the civilian power, yeah. Right, That right, exactly. Floods, fires, we're just going to be seeing more of that. That's going to put a burden onto our CAF. So it's a very important area that we're both devoted to building. Maybe just a bit more on climate change. It, it's a discussion that's happening now, not only within the government of Canada, but amongst our allies in the Five Eyes and NATO, specifically, what is the role of defense intelligence in climate change? We will only ever be a supporting role. But I think if you, know, you look at climate change, the effects of climate change will affect migration, they will affect food security, and they will also affect the ability of violent extremist organizations 
to gather new recruits. So there are definite areas where defense intelligence has a role in climate change. And I think this is something that will be worked out within Canada and amongst our allies over the next few years as to how do we work together as an integrated intelligence community to contribute to combating something that is not you know, a nation state, it's a global problem. So listening to, to your uh, in answers to the, those first questions, there's a lot going on, there's a lot of change. Can you tell us a bit about the DIER, the Defense Intelligence Enterprise Renewal that is going on? Absolutely, yes. So the Defense Intelligence Enterprise Renewal started in 2018, and it was really started because there was an acknowledgement that we had a whole bunch of people, as I said, about 4,000 people across Canadian Armed Forces Department of National Defense working on intelligence but it didn't really operate as an intelligence enterprise. So what the team started doing in 2018, 2019, was looking at a number of defense intelligence studies that had previously been done. And a lot of those studies actually led to the current structure of Canadian Forces Intelligence Command. So for example, Christine's position, the Assistant Chief of Defense Intelligence, when that was established, when Canadian Forces Intelligence Command was established as a level one command within uh, the Canadian Forces, and then also looking at what our allies were doing. We came up with eight problem statements, which if we have the time, maybe I'll just go over what those eight problem statements were because that's how we looked at what we needed to work on. So there was much more demand for intelligence than there is supply. The Canadian Defence Intelligence Enterprise, and I know I'm using air quotes on a podcast, which isn't helpful, <laughs> but uh, it operated as an enterprise in name only. The workforce of defence intelligence must evolve. We are not leveraging technology effectively. We are underinvested in force development. We are underinvested in collection. Policy, legal and oversight issues have become increasingly important. And our partnerships, both internal and external, are only becoming more important. So I don't think any of those would be big surprises to anyone across the Canadian security intelligence community. But really, this was, those were the problem statements that the Defence Intelligence Enterprise Renewal team looked at to determine what can we do to better position the Defence Intelligence Enterprise to move forward together into the future. So maybe I can just talk about a couple of the outcomes uh, from the Defence Intelligence Enterprise Renewal. First of all, we had outstanding support right up to the level of the Chief of the Defence Staff and the Deputy Minister, both at the initiation and then in the implementation of the Defence Intelligence Enterprise Renewal. We've been fully supported and in fact have had documented by the Chief of the Defence Staff and the Deputy Minister. Probably one of the biggest changes is that my position as the Chief of Defence Intelligence is now been given the authorities, responsibilities and accountability to be the integrator of the defense intelligence enterprise. So what does that mean? That means I have the authority to prioritize inf intelligence requirements across uh, Canadian Armed Forces uh, Department of National Defense to task units and entities which don't fall under CFNCOM with getting after those intelligence requirements for both collection and production coordinating resources across the defense intelligence enterprise or reallocating resources. And a lot of that is being done on the back of, frankly, initiatives that had begun before because governance is so incredibly important here. So in fact, Christine, just about an hour ago, was chairing what we call the Intelligence Direction and Coordination Board. 
And that is where we get together with the intelligence enterprise to talk about the priorities we have, determine that they're the right priorities, determine that we've identified the right requirements, and how are we going to get after collecting, analyzing, and producing on those requirements. And all of this is done in a very uh, collaborative manner and the spirit of collaboration has been actually fantastic across all of the organizations uh, within the department and across the forces who are involved with this. I'll also maybe just give a shout out to Christine was talking earlier about her directorate of intelligence production management. I cannot tell you how important revitalizing the intelligence requirements management, collection management, production management and dissemination management. So, you know, the A to Z has been in terms of getting that process put in place across the Canadian Forces and and Department of National Defense. It's made a big difference. And it's really led to another big initiative, which is a stand-up of a Joint Intelligence Operations Center, uh, which is in Startop, the home of CJOC and CanSofcom, but is basically operating under the auspices of both CJOC and CFINCOM, you know, really looking at how are we going to best position intelligence to support operations now, but more importantly, in the future. And suppose just before we move on, and, and this is really interesting, you know, this podcast is all about the little details. This is really great. I guess the first thing that like there's an increase in the demand. For intelligence, because I think, you know, some of the research, you know, we've done is, you know, yes, we can increase the amount of intelligence that we collect and products we produce, but is there the demand for the products? So where did you see that demand coming from? An increase in the, like, the kind of tempo of operations, the fact that we were, you know, the Canadian Armed Forces are deployed in Latvia in for a long time in Iraq and, you know, other places around the world. So was that the increase in the need for intelligence products or is it also you know, increasingly you guys produce products uh, that are used downtown in decision-making? So I'd say all of the above, because first of all, I think our clients, whether at the strategic level or the operational level, are more intelligence savvy than they have been in the past. But also because of the great work that has been done by our predecessors within CF Income, the quality of our products that are going out and the products that are being put out in a way that they can be easily digested and provide the information that is necessary to decision makers to, as I said, you know, have that information and decision advantage for decisions that need to be made or policy that needs to be made. You know, being in my various positions, I was in policy previous to this intelligence job and then chief of staff to deputy ministers. And I mean, it it depends on idiosyncratic factors as well of our leaders as well. What is their appetite to use intelligence to inform decision making? And I think increasing, you're seeing leaders that do see a lot of value of it. But it's really about Intcom working with our intelligence community to make sure that we're packaging the information correctly, that's easily digestible as indicated, but also that's timely. Right? So our ability to understand that maybe it needs to be 60% in terms of the way it looks. The assessment needs to be 100%, but you know, how we deliver it on a placemat, easily digestible and getting it there in a timely manner. I think in the past, you've seen that 
intelligence world just working too slow and then it becomes OBE and not useful in those discussions. So I think it's a combination of our ability to work closely, ensure our work is relevant and timely, but also getting to the table. So now the intelligence shops are more at the right tables at the right time to inform the decisions taking place. So speaking of intelligence products, one of the reasons we really wanted to speak with you is uh, we're really curious as to the D&D CAF position on Ukraine, such as, you know, you can talk about it, what's happening uh, with the war, the invasion, maybe the role that intelligence is playing in terms of perhaps uh, Government of Canada assessments and just your general view of the conflict. Yeah, I think what I'll do is I'll ask Christine to talk a little bit about how we were involved in the run up to the invasion, and then maybe I can... Uh, complement that with some observations of Love it. the first hundred days. So I guess the fall of last year, we did become increasing aware of Russia's buildup along its borders. And then that slowly expanded to Belarus. So there was a very clear buildup that was taking place. Russia had uh, had indicated that really this was a pre-planned exercise that they were undertaking, but it was very concerning from an intelligence perspective. During that initial period, we did do quite a few briefs indicating what we were seeing because there were deep concerns about it. As time went on, we recognized that there was definitely something more to this buildup. And it was not just a simple matter of a pre-planned exercise just because of the capabilities that were starting to build up along that border and with Belarus. There was also some messaging coming out of Russia indicating that this is just a strong signal that they wish to send or else it's a diplomatic course of measure that they were planning to flex. But that would just become abundantly unclear. So around early 2022 is when our analysts became confident that we were looking at a large-scale invasion into Ukraine. I think from our defense intelligence perspective, our analysts played a key role. This was inherently a military problem that we were looking at. We needed our defense intelligence analysts that had a very good understanding of military capabilities to understand what was going on in that region. It was very concerning to us. We worked again very closely across the intelligence community within Canada, but also with our Five Eyes partners to confirm our assessments. So a huge success from an intelligence perspective about our capabilities in order to come to these assessments that ended up being coming to fruition. But of course, we're in this very um, unfortunate situation that's had an impact in a very sad way on a humanitarian situation. Can I just jump on on one of the points you mentioned, looking at this from as a non-Ukraine-Russia expert, looking at this from obviously outside government, one mystery or one dilemma to me was based on media reporting at least, there were a lot of anecdotes or reporting that the the Russian government had not told many of its senior officers that it was planning on invading Ukraine. And that one of the reasons, not the only one, but one of the reasons why, especially in its early stages, the invasion went pretty badly was that a lot of the units were not ready to invade because they thought they were going on on an exercise. So from a defense intelligence perspective, if you, and I'm speaking hypothetically here, looking at this as an outsider, but if you look at this only on the basis of the the conventional narrow indicators, you wouldn't have seen an invasion coming because they actually weren't preparing for an invasion in to some extent. So th- does that highlight the need 
for you know more all source intelligence to look at it in, to include you know diplomatic or political or psychological uh, elements in the assessment to be able to actually come to the conclusion no, no even if they're not preparing for an invasion to some extent we do think they will invade how do you reconcile that that comes down to the capability versus the intent so i think particularly amongst the western allies you know nato Everyone was pretty convinced about capabilities were there, you know, and as we said in some of the briefings we had in the run-up to the invasion, you don't put 120,000 soldiers surrounding Ukraine for limited gains, which is frankly now what they're going after, limited gains after their horrible failures uh, in the first 100 days of the campaign. I think where the question came down to was the intent. And although within the Five Eyes, we had access to some information that gave us a good picture of intent. Frankly, a lot of that information you saw being put out, being declassified in much more rapidly than we've ever seen before. And I think that was something that was very important to disarm some of Russia's plans. And also, I think going forward, it's going to be very interesting to see. It, we've now, we, the Five Eyes community, have done that. I think that's now going to be the expectation. Wow, so it's it's changing the way you guys are, are thinking about this in the future. Well, I, I think if we look at it, you know, first of all, there's no going back to where we were in terms of sharing intelligence. I, I think if you look at, and really it's to the United States and the United Kingdom, specifically for their rapid declassification of the intelligence. You know, there were a few occasions where I would be reading something that was highly compartmentalized at the beginning of the week and by Saturday morning it was in the New York Times because it had been declassified in efforts by the United States and the United Kingdom to not only dissuade Russia from invading but also to persuade uh, a number of our allies who weren't convinced about the intent. I also think there's uh, no going back, and I hope that there's no going back in terms of the relevance that this has given to an organization like CF Incom to brief our senior most decision makers and to influence policy. Now, part of that, we were fortunate in that our former Deputy Minister Jody Thomas moved to become the National Security and Intelligence Advisor at the beginning of January, and she was obviously very familiar with Canadian Forces Intelligence Command. So I think we played a great role in some of the briefings to senior officials across the government, to cabinet ministers, to the prime minister himself, than we otherwise may have. But I think it's been, you know, the analysts for CF Incom have knocked it out of the park consistently. And I think that has helped build the reputation that I hope will continue where we will be able to have that seat at the table for, for decision-making. And I also think that what was done with the Five Eyes specifically in terms of sharing intelligence lines up perfectly with what I've been discussing with my counterparts in the Five Eyes for operationalizing our defense intelligence relationship. When we get together, yes, we need to talk about policy. Yes, we need to talk about priorities. But what we also want to talk about is what we are doing together, how can we operationalize that? And frankly, we've seen a lot of success in that. Maybe if I could also just, you know, we were talking about what have we seen in the last hundred days? I'll talk about the three things that have surprised me. Yeah, the, the first thing that has surprised me has been the courage 
I, I shouldn't say it's the courage has surprised me. The, the courage did not surprise me, but the ability of the Ukrainian armed forces, who were obviously trained by a lot of Canadians from 2015 on and other members of the international community, but their performance in the battlefield, I think, has surpassed expectations of most uh, Western observers and, and certainly of Canadian Forces Intelligence Command. The second thing that has surprised me has been the incompetence of Russia. This was Vladimir Putin's choice. This was his war. We have seen incompetence in their leadership. We've seen incompetence in their logistics. And we have seen incompetence in their equipment. And you know, if there are any countries out there listening to this who are buying Russian military equipment, you might want to rethink uh, your procurement uh, procedures because we've seen the failure of Russian military equipment uh, on the battlefield. The third thing that has surprised me, frankly, has been Western within NATO and within the West writ large. But that is something I was at a NATO meeting last week and, and I emphasize that's something we can't take for granted because if there is one thing that Russia is good at, it's trying to poke holes in Western cohesion. So you mentioned earlier in your response how the Americans and the British were declassifi declassifying or disclosing intelligence earlier on in the, even before the war for that matter and since then, and how, and putting on my, my transparency hat, how good that was, not only from a transparency perspective, but as a tool of, of statecraft, how good it's been. Canada has been traditionally behind its allies for a lot of reasons in doing things like that, but we're starting to do it a bit now. Can you talk a bit about what the Canadian Armed Forces and D&D are doing at that level? Yeah, absolutely. I'll let Christine talk about what we're actually doing because it's her team that are putting uh, together those products. But this is very much inspired by specifically United Kingdom defense intelligence. In the days leading up to the invasion, and then certainly from the invasion onwards, UK defense intelligence has been putting out fantastic products to counter Russian claims to counter Russian disinformation. And so as we were operating amongst the Five Eyes in the early weeks of the invasion, we were looking at what the United Kingdom was doing and trying to determine, okay, how can we take what they're doing and put it in a Canadian template? Yeah, I would just say one of the inspirational parts from coming out of the UK was in the right before the invasion where Russia was saying publicly that, um, well, almost mocking the West for making a big deal about a potential invasion into Ukraine, saying that their troops were moving away from the border on Ukraine. And that was shocking to us because in intelligence, we could see exactly what was happening and that wasn't the case. And it was the UK that sent out a tweet. I believe that was their first one related to this conflict. And it had said, that is not true and these are the facts. So that was a huge inspiration for us. We're not at all surprised that Russia is using disinformation in this space. They've used it in the past for social unrest, also for disrupting elections and also covering their own inappropriate behaviors. So we anticipated that. There has been a lot of conversations internationally and in Canada about what we can do within that space and we have the UK as a great model for us. So that was our inspiration. So we started working with the, you know, the Canadian, well, I, I think what had happened was we finally had appetite 
in Canada to engage in those activities. There's various levels of involvement we could have. We could be very disruptive in the disinformation space, but what we're looking for with our role is simply to clarify the facts because we're operating in a very crowded social media space and it gets very confusing. And it's not just for the Canadian public, but it's rather anybody that's really tracking these issues and interested. So that's when we started having conversations across town. We work very very closely with our ADM, Public Affairs, to drive it forward where we could play in it. And so our suggestion was using tweets, both with what Russia is saying, and then here are the facts. We've done a few on food security. One is supposed to go out today, I believe, but we, we have the blessing to release those. So I think it's a really exciting time for us to be involved in that. I, I would just make a comment that, you know, Russia, has always been viewed as being very sophisticated in this space. I think that with our involvement and that of our allies, we're starting to essentially discredit Russia's ability to operate and also on its own reputation and perhaps making it more difficult for them to operate there. So from a defense intelligence perspective, we're really excited to be entering into this. CSC, as you're tracking, is very involved as well. They're regularly tweeting out to expose what we're seeing. Just to push on a little, because is there a risk that in doing so and putting out there's the preemption, which I, you know, is really interesting, or the pre-bunking, I think the Brits have referred to it as, right? Like you're trying to basically call out Russian actions before the Russians even do them. And so that, you know, when they do them, then they, everyone can see what they are for what they are. But is there a risk that this kind of activity turns into kind of a propaganda exercise? And do you, what are the considerations you have when you are doing these kinds of social media activity because they said it, it, this is unprecedented it may be the way of the future which you know you've implied earlier in the conversation which is such a fascinating um, area for me so i'd be curious to to know how are you guys thinking about like maintaining that right line right so i would say it's not propaganda because what we're telling is the truth and it's not our interpretation of the truth it is we are dealing in facts I also think that if we just go back to Tomas' question, this is really important for transparency because as you said at the beginning of the podcast, how many Canadians know that there's something called Canadian Forces Intelligence Command, which is frankly why we were really excited to have this opportunity to be on the podcast, why we were really excited to speak to the two of you and a couple of your colleagues a few months ago to start trying to be more proactive in our communications about what we are doing and also what we're not doing you know to maybe dispel some myths that people have about you know nefarious activities that that the people are involved in so to to change tack a bit from uh ukraine if we can move on to the pandemic you know one of the interesting points that christine you made on, on climate change was how climate change uh, you know, is not a, a military issue per se, but it has security implications that are of concern to CFINTCOM and to other organizations in the intelligence community, whether it's through forced migration or more natural disasters and, and so on. In a way, the pandemic is a bit like that, right? It's a public health issue, but one that, as we've seen very clearly in the last two plus years, has national security implications that concern you. So. Can you tell us a bit about what the pandemic has meant for you? What has been the role of medical intelligence and, and how has it you know, changed how you, you do business uh, now? 
Right. Uh, maybe I'll start off by just correcting stories that uh, have been published in the media before about uh, the Canadian Forces Medical Intelligence Unit having a failure in terms of predicting or foreseeing the COVID-19 pandemic. I can tell you this is not classified information. There is no Canadian Forces Medical Intelligence Unit. We have a couple of professionals uh, within Christine's organization who are medical intelligence experts. But here it is really important to state we are a net importer of intelligence in the Five Eyes. And in an area like medical intelligence where we don't have uh, unlimited resources, in fact, we have very limited resources to put towards it, this is where we rely so heavily on our Five Eyes relationship. Maybe I'll ask Christine just to talk a little bit about you know, not only medical intelligence, but all the other incredible people that we have working in the Directorate of Science and Technological Intelligence. I would highlight that it's the MedInt folks are within our Director of Science and Technical Intelligence. And essentially, they're looking at what could hurt us very badly. And, and, and by us, you mean the Canadian Armed Forces? Or do you mean the country? The country. Right. And the Canadian Armed Forces. But what are the capabilities of other countries? I do say this quite often that... You know, the grimmest part of my day is when I'm hearing about the capability development of other countries. And so what our team looks at is they look at, you know, weapons, missiles, they look at capabilities in space. And all of these developments are really tailored at, you know, hurting us and outpacing our own capabilities. So that is essentially what DSTI is the organization there that looks at all of those types of developments, including biological and chemical weapons. So there wasn't a, a giant medical intelligence unit that just took like, you know, January 2020 off. There was not. Right. Okay. So look, you've been very generous with your time and I want to wrap it up with another issue that's been a lot in the, the news, which is the, the five eyes, three eyes relationship. Basically, we heard in the fall of 2021 that there was going to be a new submarine agreement that was quickly called AUKUS, Australia, United Kingdom, United States. And there was a talk about three eyes. Actually, Tama and I have wrote an editorial about it that maybe we can link in the, in the footnotes. But so there's been, but there's been a lot of consternation. Um, that Canada is is not part of this. Now, I think part of this might just be the fact that Canadians are chronic joiners. When we see an organization, we suddenly feel that we should be joining it, we should be there without maybe thinking through our strategic interests. But I think the, the, the more interesting question perhaps is, uh, you've mentioned throughout you know the Ukraine conflict, uh, even the pandemic, things like this, the Five Eyes intelligence sharing relationship has been key. So what is the state of that relationship right now? And, and you know, are there concerns about a Three Eyes? Right. So I think I would say the relationship is strong, but the relationship needs constant nurturing. The relationship is strong. And in fact, one of the reasons why CFNCOM was able to make such strong assessments and recommendations leading up to the invasion was because of our placement in the Five Eyes. And in fact, specifically with the US and the UK for geographical reasons, obviously Australia and New Zealand weren't as engaged. And you are right that AUKUS came about as a result of Australia specifically being involved or being interested in nuclear submarine uh, technology. I think what's important for Canada going forward is to realize that we need to remain interoperable with our allies and we need to remain credible with our allies. And that's going to take investment. And I'm not you know, advocating for any specific capability here, but if you look at 
the types of technology that will be incredibly important to not only defense intelligence, but defense writ large in the future, artificial intelligence, machine learning, quantum computing. You know, we often call them emerging technologies, but frankly, a lot of them have emerged. And these are areas where the cost of being a part of the Five Eyes is very high, but I would argue that the cost of being outside of the Five Eyes is higher. So in many ways, the, the beauty of the Five Eyes is its flexibility, right? That, that different topics can hold different priorities for different members and, and it can be, a, you know, the way the organization, or it's not an organization, but the way the partnership works can be adjusted based on, on everybody's interests. It, absolutely. As we're wrapping up here, the final question I'll ask, often we bring people in from government. Uh, a lot of our listeners are students who are thinking of joining the intelligence community or just want to know more about it. So, I mean, obviously there's two tracks here. There's the military track and the civilian track. So I know there's a program, the DIORP, the Defense Intelligence Officer Recruiting Program. So I, I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about that and, and how someone can join safe income as a civilian, but then maybe perhaps you can spend a few words on, on what the military path would be as well. Yeah, so as you correctly pointed out, Stephanie, we do have that DIORP program. That's meant for fresh out of university graduate students that are interested in working in intelligence. Generally, they would be required to have a master's degree, but it doesn't necessarily need to be in political science as you know we tend to recruit in other areas. But And we are looking for a diversity of backgrounds so that can enhance our assessments. It is a bit of a rigorous program to get through, but nonetheless, it is de definitely a valuable one and it gives new graduates it's about home within the intelligence community. So there's that DIORP program, but there's also other ways to enter into INCOM, which is a simply coming and approaching somebody that works in intelligence and finding out ways that they could come over. We're always looking for people across um, government as well to join our team. I, I would just say that it really is a rewarding place to work. Just being someone that grew up outside of intelligence rather on the policy front, which is very, I mean, I benefited enormously from growing up in that environment. Coming over in intelligence is such an enriching experience because we see every single day how our intelligence is making a difference, how we're informing strategic decision making and informing how our government wants to proceed on various issues, but also at the operational level where we're at the table, you know, contributing to the planning for our operations. It's really about protecting Canada and Canadians, which is just a really cool field to be working in. And from the military perspective, one thing that has changed over the last few years is that the intelligence occupation, both for officers and for our inst intelligence operators or non-commissioned members, used to be an occupation that they would go into after having already served in another occupation somewhere across the Canadian forces. It is now an occupation that they go into direct entry, which is great for us. But it's also a challenge for us because we have to make sure that we are inculcating a defense intelligence culture. And that is also part of the larger transformation of the culture of the Canadian Armed Forces that needs to happen and is happening and is very timely this week, obviously, with the release of the Arbor report. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time and we covered a lot. So, but hopefully, you know, this will be part of an ongoing conversation about what you guys are, are doing, looking at, and hopefully we'll hear more about the Defense Intelligence Enterprise renewal going forward. So thank you so much. 
Thank you, Stephanie and Tomova. And can I just say thank you, thanks to the two of you, not only for this podcast, but also for all of the writing that you do, because there is not nearly enough discussion on national security in Canada. So everything that you do and your colleagues do through avenues like this podcast, through the books that you're producing at a very prolific rate, through the op-eds you're producing, really, I think, help inform the national security discussion, which needs to uh, be given more attention in our country. Well, they can't end better than that. (laughs) Cheers. (laughs) 